This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Doubleline Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Doubleline has no obligation to provide updates or changes. Welcome to the latest episode of the Sherman Show. Today is Monday, February 27, 2023, and I am Jeff Sherman, along with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And I think I said I'm Jeff Sherman twice, but if not, now you've heard it thrice. So uh, anyway, our guest today is Ted Seides, um, you know, who said that we can, uh, no one can really pronounce his name until he hosted a podcast. And so now he's famous. He's, he's ubiquitous with podcasting. And Ted is the founder of Capital Allocators. It's not just a podcasting platform, but it's an ecosystem, uh, which includes the podcast, you know, gatherings, um, and advisory to both managers and asset allocators. So Ted, welcome to the Sherman Show. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Yeah. So I know you're slumming it today, uh, coming on our show. You know, uh, again, I think that's <laughs> all because, you know, you want to feel this out before you invite any of us to come on your side, though. Um, but, you know, uh, we know that prior to you, you founding Capital Allocators, too, um, you had a you 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 served as a co-founder of Protégé Partners and you were a multi-billion dollar alternative investment shop. And so uh, what I'd like to hear is about a little bit about your background, what led you into that side. Obviously, you've written a couple of books. Uh, we can plug those here today as well. But wanted to talk to you kind of what what made you, you know, start on that path and then what took you on the deviations across uh, the spectrum where you are today. Sure. Thanks. Yeah. Um, my first job right out of college, I went to Yale undergrad, was working for David Swenson at the Yale Endowment. And I, yeah, you know, uh, you wouldn't have back then, but uh, but you, yeah, people have today. And yeah. I didn't know much. I was interested in stocks. I had a literal rich uncle that was in the business, but he was on your coast, not on mine, on the East Coast. I hadn't spent a lot of time with him. And uh, and it was just the job I, you know, found my way to out of college and just an, a remarkable place to start a career. So I spent five years learning really the manager selection, portfolio construction, asset allocation um, business. Ted, Ted, real quick, um, yeah. for our listeners out there, how do they acquire one of these rich uncle things? Uh, well, that's genetic. You just get born into it. So you have a, you have a middle-class mother whose younger brother uh, made it in the money management business. I think that's the way to do it. All right. All right. Perfect. So all of our <laughs> listeners out there, that's the way to work through it. Um. And so I worked for David for five years. That's where I learned the business um, and, fe and fell in love with it. And I decided from there, well, I went to Harvard Business School from there. I decided I wanted to try my hand at, at doing what the managers Yale invested with. So I was really interested in stocks and thought that that's what I wanted to do. So I came out of school. I, I did that my summer job. I worked at a hedge fund in the summer of 98, which was the um, a value. Back then, long short equity hedge funds were usually long value and short growth. And that wasn't a factor thing. That was just how they made money. 
And that was a summer where Amazon went from you know 40 to 260. All the companies they would short, there was this little coffee chain that lost money every day called Starbucks, and they were short that. So it was an interesting time, even for a short period of time to, to learn a little bit. But I decided I want to learn a little more about business fundamentals. So I went on the private equity side and did that, worked for two different of Yale's managers my first couple of years out. And after a couple of years of not quite finding my footing and not kind of the mentorship, I had such a wonderful mentor in David, it was kind of looking for that. I just decided to go back to the manager selection side. And by then, David had written his, you know, what's now famous book. He it published in 2000. I graduated business school in 1999. So um, I was getting phone calls about all different kinds of things and ended up forming what became a, a pretty interesting boutique hedge fund of funds that in, that sort of as a strategy drew on a lot of the ways that I learned to invest at Yale. Um, and just focused in the hedge fund world. That's called Protege Partners. And stayed there for, I think, 14 years from when we started it. And grew it to a couple billion dollars. Decided to leave not knowing what I was going to do. One thing led to another. And and then it was a podcast. So there's a bunch of steps along the way. Yeah. Well, um, you know, when I think about the kind of Swenson model, I think people uh, colloquially refer to it these days, it was a larger emphasis on the alternatives. And so... Was there any relationship because of that kind of Swenson tutelage that led you to, to uh, create a firm that focused more on the alternative side of the business? That's a great question. Uh, the funny thing is the answer is no, in the sense that when I worked at Yale, although the alternatives were an important part of the asset allocation, more of the assets were still in traditional you know, public stocks and bonds. I mean, not so much in bonds, but I focused my time in my first of a couple of roles at Yale in public equities, just long only US equities. Um, yeah. And so my love for the business was more stock markets and, and a little bit companies. I was never deep in company analysis, but the analytics that come from that too. And it's an incredible foundation for understanding all these alternatives because someone who just starts in say a box of a hedge fund, there's a lot to understand about say the portfolio construction aspect of it. But underneath it is long stocks and short stocks. And private equity looks like it's this complex secret sauce and magic illiquid bucket, but it's just someone who owns a business and tries to improve the business and then sell it. And so I think the fundamentals underlying all, most of the alternative strategies, not all, come from business analysis and on the public side, stock picking, and, and on the private side, just businesses. And for me, because I spent more of my time at Yale in public equities and to some extent in fixed income, hedge funds were natural because they were the liquid versions of a broad opportunity set. And that's what I saw, one of the things that just so excited me at Yale, being thoughtful about investing without being confined to a bucket. So if you went back into the early noughts, that's what investing in hedge funds was. It was the public security version of being incredibly flexible with where you're looking for opportunities. Yeah, and I think an extension of that, or at least something I've heard at least over the last decade or so, um, is trying to bring those kind of hedge fund strategies to the masses and, you know, kind of to, uh, as you, you described it too, um, the, the uh, title of liquid alts, 
right? And so these alternative investment strategies. And I think when people say alternatives, at least in my mind, when I hear the word alternatives, you're trying to find things that exhibit lower correlation to the public U.S. equity or public fixed income markets, right? And so, you know, how do you think about this concept of liquid alts? And do you think it has been a success? Do you think there's improvement? Uh, do you think that we haven't even seen the tip of the iceberg? Or is it just a bunk myth out there that, you know, you, you need to go to the classic structures? Yeah. Well, I think you have to start breaking it down with first principles. And so some of those are liquid alts, alts, like what's the box? Um, does it matter if it's liquid or not? Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And then there's also a first principle, particularly on the hedge fund side, that these strategies to really succeed are generally thought of as capacity constrained. And a lot's changed. So like I mentioned at the onset, a long short equity fund oftentimes in the early years did really, really well on what today we would call a factor bet. But people didn't fully understand factor bets. They certainly hadn't productized it the way you know the ETF world has. So what's considered value added, or some people say alpha today, is very different from what it was you know, 30 years ago. Because- well, I take pause with yeah. a lot of the ETFs out there that, that describe the factors because- they may have the factor bet embedded in there, but they also deliver beta, right? Where typically what you would see historically through, through those quant funds or, you know, we can call them factor investors is that they were truly long, short, exploiting it and not delivering you that beta, right? Because you were getting it elsewhere in your portfolio. Yeah, but there's a lot of ways to package it. The fact is, if you want to go long value and short growth, you could go long a value ETF and shorter growth ETF and create 90% of the return that, it, that a hedge fund did you know, 30 years ago. Yep. So I, I think the biggest challenge in the liquid alts is that many of these strategies don't scale when they're successful. Uh, and you've seen, that, you've seen that in the diminution of hedge fund returns over time. Mm -hmm. We might start to see that in the private markets. You know, we haven't yet, but if you look at just private equity, forget about the liquid, potential for private equity, which is a little bit of an oxymoron. As valuations go up, you would expect returns to come down. We haven't seen that yet, but we might. Um, you certainly see these crashing bubbles of valuation on the on more of the early stage side. A dramatic difference from 2021 to last year. And so my take all along with the liquid alts is I'm not sure that these strategies that are hard to deliver, and you really need outstanding practitioners to generate the kinds of returns that justify known high, high levels of fees, that that really translates to a liquid box for the masses. I think the jury's still out about that. All right. So we talked about that stint. Now let's talk about your latest stint with capital allocators and the business as a whole. So some folks out there mainly know you from the podcasting side. So talk to us about how you developed that business, what your vision for it is, and you know, what got you into this uh, this world of podcasting as well, which we, we, we have envy. That's why we're here with you today. <laughs> well, the fun part about it is when I started it, there was no thought that that, that it would be a business. Uh, it didn't make any sense. I was like, all right, Sherman, we're going to have, let's just have a fun chat. We'll share it with people for free. How's that sound as a business? 
Sound a lot Sounds to me. Like old, we've been doing it for six clicks. years. We, we, we've been doing it for six years. We haven't made a dollar yet, you know? So uh, <laughs> I'm waiting for, Sam told me there's this guy, Joe Rogan, that's made like a hundred million dollars or something. And I'm like, well, you know, um, you know, I guess he he got all the podcast money and, and he didn't share with the rest of us, you know? Yeah. I, I haven't seen the Rogan bucks uh, either, to be fair. Um, <laughs> okay. So when I left protege, I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. I certainly wasn't done in any sense. And I was doing a bunch of projects, hadn't quite found the next big thing. And I had published a book that was um, a really good book other than the title, which was So You Want to Start a Hedge Fund. Um, so I think So You Think you, you Can Dance was getting popular and I couldn't think of a better title. But it was really a, a series of lessons that I had learned from being in a rare seat of, of involved with a lot of startup hedge funds. And that led me to be on a couple podcasts. And one day I woke up and said, oh, you know, maybe it'd be fun if I, I have time on my hands. Let me run around and talk to my old endowment friends and just, I don't know, let's try it. And so that, that was how it started. And I would say for a couple of years, that was it. I, I always thought, oh, I'm going to slow down or this is going to end in two months when I have a real job or whatever. And I had a bunch of projects and, and the largest of them ended and I had advertisers start to call. And so it, sort of became business about two years ago, I would say it's also been about six years, but two years ago, I started taking it a little more seriously as a business. And what, what's fun about it and why I think it's worked is just a weird combination of things that I've done, people I've worked with and, and how I enjoy spending my time. So the vast majority of how I spend my time is not terribly dissimilar. Right? I, I talk to a lot of managers, I talk to a lot of my peers and I invest some capital. Um, and the difference is the, if you want to call it the business or the output mechanisms, totally different, right? I used to have the conversation, we'd bring it back in our research team, talk about it, make a decision about whether we're going to deploy capital or change how much we're deploying or whatever it is. And now I have the conversation. There's no conversation. There's no decision point. We just share it. Um, and so what, what happened, and this, I would say was not by design initially, was there's not really a format or a form or a purpose for a lot of the CIOs. So let's think about the CIOs on the, on the asset owner side um, or those capital allocators to share what they do. They don't pitch for business. They, don't, they have one client. That client doesn't usually ask them for their whole story or how they're, they're just sort of evolving in investment committee meetings. And I was just surprised. I, did, I didn't realize, I didn't know if they'd be interested in talking. Turns out there's a lot of reasons why they would. And a lot of them were just my friends and peers and some were former clients. And so the, the first year or so, it was just all friends. It was all, hey, do me a favor. I'm going to try this thing. And what's happened over time is it's clear that there's a lot of educational value that people are deriving from these conversations, which is just incredibly rewarding. And now we're in the process of trying to figure out like how can we continue to connect and learn with the people in that community? Yeah, well, I see I see you're up to almost 300 episodes now on there. So that's a lot of friends. That's more than I have. Um, you know, like uh, we had to go to, you know, you're, you're in our derivative friend list of, and you know, you're a friend of a friend. Hopefully we, we can get you up into that first level. Uh, maybe after today, you'll, you, you, you'll rethink that as well. But um, you know, I, I, you know, what, what have you kind of learned in the evolution of this as well? Is there, 
something that really makes you want to have a conversation? What, what, you know, are you trying to drive a conversation or is it really just more that intellectual curiosity? As you said, it's kind of like your friends or people in the industry and, and you know that they're insightful people. And if you just have a conversation, the world can learn from it. Um. It's a great question. There are different iterations of it, and there's not there's not sort of one particular model. But in what I do on the show, a fair amount of it is helping someone tell their story. And I think one of the things that I've always enjoyed, but is a little bit missing in our industry, is the personal story side of it, particularly if you're the asset owner. People just want to come in and pitch you. They don't really want to know like who you are. And I always enjoyed that. They're just trying to find out who people are. So, you know, some of, when I have a guest for the first time, a fair, we start with like, who are you? How'd you get here? You know, their stories along the way. And then we'll talk about, you know, how do they think about investing and how do they do it? And having sat in that seat for 20 years, right? There's always a wormhole to go down somewhere. And it's only, you know, our conversations are usually only an hour on that that are shared. So like you can't go too far. So you have to just decide at, at different times. So there's a core part of the show that's very um, long duration, evergreen, right? The, the, there are shows that we put out six years ago that people still listen to today because it's that person and their story and the way they think. It's a lot more strategic than it is market sensitive. And then on top of that, there are, um, there are, topics that become of interest. And I don't think of it as topics as, hey, you know, rates are going up. Uh, we have to think about inflation. There's a little bit of that in the normal shows. But every year, there are a few things that that community is probably thinking about. And I'll do a mini series. I'll, I'll do a slightly deeper dive onto you know, one or two of those topics each year. And that's, so there's just different iterations. The other thing that's funny is having been in the business for 25 years, I am still working through my friends. I've met a lot of wonderful new friends from doing the show, but I still have, I'm still bumping into people that I haven't talked to in a long time that come on the show that are old friends. You know, it's kind of interesting to me. And then Sherman, you know, when you, when you went through the intro, it, it kind of piqued my interest where you're saying that, uh, you know, capital allocator serves as a also as an advisory to both the managers as well as the allocator side. So, you know, usually when I think about that, you know, from an advisory, many just focus on one side of the business or the other. But really, you're sitting in between, and you're getting, you know, obviously you have your experience from from your your prior you know your prior career, and then you've also had many from that you had the experience of interviewing managers, but. Can you talk about sitting in between and connecting those yeah. two sides, helping them? What I would understand, what I would think is understanding one another, because you know Sherman and I sit on one side of the table. We think about investments and how we meet certain parameters and objectives that are laid out to us by the other side of the table, the capital allocators, and they only see one side. And then you know the interviews that they're trying to understand us and figure us out, you know. What is it like sitting in between and just having both sides of that, you know, knowledge on both sides and just bringing us together? Yeah. So just as a, if I, if I pick apart little pieces of my background, which is why it's like innate to me. So I started on the, on the asset owner side. So the other side, that, that allocator side of the table as a, and then I spent a couple of years, but it was in junior kind of more research roles on the manager side as a fund of funds, you are in the middle. 
I mean, you're probably on the investment side, you're more of an allocator, but you're also running a business. So you understand that within our fund of funds, we were an active seeder of new hedge funds, which meant that I was consistently on the side of the table of the manager, helping them think about their business, what's going on in the market, how should they position. But at the same time, you care about the integrity of what they're doing in terms of the, the performance of the fund, because that's where your assets are. So I had a lot of time spent almost bridging those, those two sides. And so what happens now um, is that I just can see them both. So some of the managers I advise, a lot of them are longstanding friends and relationships, and it's a little bit of a high impact, low, low time, like high return on time and high value add. Um, there have been one or two where I talk to them about their investment portfolios, but a lot more of it has gravitated to being about the business, about the strategy, about what, not what are your clients thinking or, you know, who can, who else can you talk to? Everybody wants to try to raise money. I don't really do that for them. It's understanding what are people thinking about? What are they not thinking about? It's a little bit easier to give, you know, an example um, or two, which I can do. And then on the allocator side, it's tended to be more kind of investment committee seats. I've been on an on a investment committee for 12 years. I just came off, as we talked about earlier, I just joined the advisory board of Fund Evaluation Group, which will be really, really fun. Um, they were a client back in the day, a protege, and I've known them for a long time. Um, I advise a group called Stable that does seeding of alternative businesses that I, after a long time of being out of that, I've watched how well I think they're doing a good job of and agreed to help them out. So there's, it's just, it's just a consequence of the kinds of conversations I generally have. And, and I think it's true of most chief investment officers on the asset owner side know a lot about the businesses the structure of the businesses, what partner, what makes partnerships work. Um, they've just been involved in it for a long time. So a lot of those people, I think, can easily um, similarly serve uh, on both sides. Yeah, you'd mentioned too getting to know someone and you know, through the diligence process too. And you, you talked about your platform being one to, you know, get like-minded folks together and think about it. But you know, as someone who was an allocator at one point too. What what gives you comfort through that fiduciary process or through that, I'm sorry, gives you comfort through the due diligence process that, you know, this is someone who's a fiduciary that I can trust with that capital because, you know, it, no matter how many meetings you have, you don't know me, right? Like, how do you get to get to that comfort level with the the people on the other side of the table? Yeah. Well, you you always have to appreciate what you know and what you don't know. So just as that starting point, um, you know, you have lots of clients. How well do they really know you? Well, not that much. They're only meeting you a couple of times a year. There's an element of pattern recognition. There's an element of doing a lot of work up front, really trying to paint the mosaic of the person and who they are that's managing the capital or the organization or both. Um, and then everyone has their own biases, understanding what those biases are. Um, and I don't think there's a secret sauce to it, but there's a lot more. One of the things I found that surprised me um, in sort of the mid to later years of Protege is that there's a lot more that's similar in the assessment of um, how an allocator thinks about a manager than how a manager thinks about an underlying security or business that they're investing in. 
Um, there are clearly differences in what the analysis is that goes into it. But over time, you realize that the, there's a portfolio construction element. There's a position sizing element. There's a bet on a management team element. You know, and you could say the same thing when fixed income can be a little bit different from equities, but in the equities world, how much does a stock picker really know about the management, the, you know, the CEO of the company? Well, not that much more than an allocator might know about the, the manager, right? So you're, you don't know, you're making decisions under uncertainty and you rely on relationships and networks and to some degree pattern recognition to try to get those things you know, mostly right. You know, one question I have, you know, just to kind of continue this theme, and you'll notice a lot of my questions are going to be just trying to understand the other side of the table here as, you know, as we're trying to figure, as I'm trying to figure that out, but what really drives the investment decisions for allocators? And it comes again towards finding these, the right managers and the right fit, but, um, you know, oftentimes from my side of the table, we, we, we already have these defined investable universes or assets in the in a definable universe we have performance objectives we have risk tolerance and we're oftentimes we're given that by the perspective or existing client but from the other side of the table how are the decisions to reach those parameters made i mean is it just needs based is it you know, are they looking at are you looking at macro thinking that okay we're you know we entered the inflationary period we're probably going to be exiting it. we want to change some types of strategies that we're utilizing within our own um, allocations and, and models. You know, how are these decisions made and, and reached by the allocators themselves? Yeah. So by the time the allocator is in front of you and you're just discussing your strategy to them, there's a lot that's already happened. Mm -hmm. So it starts at a much, much higher level, which is what is the need and purpose of the capital that they're serving? So all of these pools of capital, if it's a university, it might be funding current and future generations of scholars. If it's a foundation, mm -hmm. it probably has a, a, a nonprofit mission. If it's a pension fund, it has to do with retirees. All of those things start with an understanding of what is the purpose of the capital that's trying to serve, and then how do you map numbers onto that to get to really return objectives and spending. And then from that, what's the best way to create an investment policy to succeed in meeting those objectives? Um, that we think of oftentimes as encapsulated in some form of asset allocation. Um, but that's just one way of doing it. There's lots of different ways of doing it. But that's what's always in the back of their mind, which is I'm trying to construct a portfolio to get the best return I can given the suitable level of risk for my institution. Or if there's a certain level of risk I'm trying to accept, what's the highest return I can, I can achieve? And then from there, you go into, sometimes you go into asset classes, sometimes you go into risk factors, sometimes there's all different ways you can then approach the investment problem of trying to meet that risk and return objective relative to risk, as I mentioned, relative to liquidity, relative to preferences, right? These days, some people are more ESG sensitive than others. There's all kinds of things that factor into the, really the map or the playing field that then gets to, okay, within that framework, how do we want to best populate it? Let's say it's with managers to meet our objectives. So you as double line coming in saying, okay, we have this great fixed income product. 
as probably 90% of someone's assets already are doing something else to serve their objective that doesn't fit into what you're doing. And then they're going to be comparing you to all of the other people that could do the same thing to meet that particular objective that the investment strategy you're pursuing um, will satisfy. And so a lot of what happens when a manager comes in front of an, al of an allocator is they don't, nor will they be really privy to everything that goes on outside of it to get to the point where they say why this may or may not be a strategy uh, that, that suits their portfolio. Now, on top of that, there are very, very few new pools of capital. So for the most part, all of that articulation of what the objectives are, what's the roadmap to get there, has already been done and has already been populated by a bunch of investment strategies that every single day and while you sleep are hopefully compounding capital to meet those objectives. So then what happens is there's turnover within the portfolio. Why does that happen? Well, number one reason we already know, everybody chases performance. Nobody wants to, but everybody does. So if someone underperforms in aggregate, you know, there's a change, somebody who's performing better might come in. Um, sometimes you have new leadership or that has a new a uh, vision of, of how some of that capital can get changed, or, or sorry, how some of that capital might pivot in direction, and that causes some turnover. Um, but that's all of what happens. It's very thoughtful. It just happens all outside of markets for the most part. It happens outside of individual managers. And then they come to the table with a set of objectives and a current portfolio that they're always trying to refine and fine tune. Okay, and so I, I think I think that makes a lot of sense too because I, I was a little disheartened there when you said, "Well, you know, we can't um, we we can't meet ninety percent of their objective there." So, but then you brought it back, and I feel I feel like okay, we we do have some purpose here. But as you think about you know spanning a little over two decades now, you know what have you seen in the evolution of kind of the investment management industry too, and you know the product offerings and things and like. Have we evolved or is it back to the old saying that there's nothing new under the sun, right? We started off talking about quant and hedge fund. Well, they've all just were factor strategies. Now they've been kind of, I won't say they were exposed, but there's been more transparency around it. So is, are we at the still, there's nothing new under the sun phase? Uh, are we still innovating? How are you thinking about how the, the industry itself is progressing forward? It's a little bit of both. Um, so Morgan Housel is one of my favorite you know, modern investment writers who wrote the book, The Psychology of Money, the things he writes about greed and fear and cycles, and that, that's all the same stuff. It just keeps at, and we just saw it again, right? The, the, the tech stock, growth stock, crypto implosion of valuations looks a lot like 2000 to 2002 and living through that. So there's an element that markets are cycles, some short and some long that repeat. I also think the thing that um, doesn't change is an increase and in drive for innovation and sophistication. So if you looked at the average practitioner today, they are far more sophisticated than the average practitioner when I got started in the business, far more. The problem with that is it lends itself to what Michael Mobison calls the paradox of skill, which is the average skill of all the practitioners is so much higher that it makes it that much harder for them to outperform because the bar is just constantly set higher. So you could take those principles and apply them to investment strategies. Like back in the day, 
the hedge fund box was the only way to access long value short growth. Now there's lots of different ways and are more cost effective. Um, so the strategies get more sophisticated. What was a novel opportunity gets commoditized. Pricing gets more competitive. I think you'll see pricing has come down for a long time and is starting to come down more and more in the alternative space. Um, so some of those trends are the same, but within it, it's always new. There's always, you know, we didn't have crypto to have a bubble 10 years ago. Um, so the actual thing in the market that's creating the cycle is always some new innovation. Yeah. So what, what I'm piggybacking on that too. What is one of the more recent innovations and, in, you know, recent can be 20 years in this business, right? But, but what, are, what are some of the more recent innovations that get you excited? that you think are really moving in a different direction here. And this isn't trying to lead into crypto or anything. I'm just yeah. curious on what you're really thinking about in, in terms of things you've seen in the industry. And it can be a strategy, it can be a sector, an asset class. It can be just the education. Again, take it where you think is, um, you know, what excites you the most. Yeah. Let me, let me take two examples. One sort of closer to markets and the other closer to investment organizations. So closer to markets, data science. Um, is something that when I first was looking at shorting a stock in 1998, the, the innovative short sellers were sending young people to parking lots to count cars. Then it became satellite images could look at parking lots to see how many cars were there. Now so you have to be careful the Potemkin villages, though, they're just placing the cars there to delude you with the satellites. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and then you have, you know, new data streams, and now you have AI, which is just a, a more efficient way of processing all that data. So that's happened at the, at, say, at the stock picking level for a long time. And people on the asset owner, the allocator side are starting to think about, are there ways you could use data science to improve the decisions about money managers? It's much harder for a lot of reasons. But it's just a fascinating development. So whether that's data science and now obviously into AI, um, not I'm not a technologist, but it's really interesting to see how how much has changed and how it continues to. And then you take that one step down to companies, and it's clear in say biotechnology how all of this data science and AI is going to improve outcomes for people and prolong lives and, and reduce disease. So that's one at the company level that just continues to accelerate. At the investment organization level, it's kind of an interesting one where much of what we've talked about in terms of the structure of how a large pool of capital might create an asset allocation and then look for managers to serve their purpose, that I think is really well known now. The idea of an investment policy, an asset allocation, diversification, what equities are, what fixed income is, what hedge funds are, what venture capital and private equity and real assets are. When I was working for David at Yale, people didn't even know about that. <laughs> I mean, it was a 60-40, like the, the game to succeed in hedge funds was just even understanding what it was, getting it by your committee and, and allocating to it. It didn't matter what managers you had. It just all worked. And so one of the things that I found really interesting over the last couple of years is that um, I liken it to what Charlie Ellis, uh, he referred to investing as the loser's game and used the analogy of tennis, that if you look at tennis at the highest levels, it's determined by the number of winners 
Novak Djokovic hits or Carlos Alcaraz. But most tennis, club level and below, is, is played by who makes the fewer errors, the fewer unforced errors. In the investment office, I think it's the same thing. Like people want to go out and look for that next great manager to move the needle, but they haven't paid nearly as much attention to the practices that make businesses really successful. So things like decision-making, how do you make sound decisions? Leadership and management, notoriously, money managers are good at managing money, maybe not so good at managing people. Well, what, happened if they, what would happen if they were good at managing people? How, how much better could they do? Um, things like communication. How do people deliver message well? Things that work really, really well in great organizations, but no one really in the past has equated great investment management organizations to the same level of scrutiny as a great business outside of investing. So that's one of the things that I've been really interested in. And one of the things I've learned the most about relative to my investment career over the last five or six years from doing the podcast is all these different disciplines that apply elsewhere, that apply to investing and are far more professional outside the industry than inside the industry and trying to figure out how to help bring that into the industry. Yeah, so we've covered a, covered a lot, you know, a lot of ground here in this, uh, in this, uh, this episode here, but I kind of wanted to bring a few of the ideas and concepts that you're, you're talking about here and kind of keep it in line with the idea of the evolution of the industry where, you know, we've talked about the hedge fund business and how is high fee, you know, more complex, perceived complexity there. Um, that's kind of the, the the starting point, let's just say, from the conversation, and then moving more towards, you know, at least on a on a relative basis, a lower fee through the ETF vehicle and the ability to get some factor based uh, ETFs there. And it kind of makes me think of this concept that of democratization of investing or democratization of finance, which all in all sounds like a very positive thing, right? But what are some of the risks there that you know people might not be taking into account in when you start to wrap these more complex strategies that were once, you know, only offered to, to certain type of investors or offered through hedge funds, liquid alt managers, and then really just putting them into a daily liquidity wrapper that's available for any investor. Um, you were talking about a little bit earlier about the commoditization of, you know, perhaps complexity, but this, this democratization of investing, is there something behind it that people need to be more wary of, especially when it comes to this access to everyone? Yeah, I think there's two there's two aspects of it. One is just expectations of outcomes. So let's let's take out left tail risk, which is the other one and an important one. Um, the more money that comes into any investment strategy, generally speaking, the diminution of returns, and that's particularly true. Most of these alternative strategies are not thought of as some type of beta driven strategy. They're thought of some type of skill-based strategy. The more money that comes in, it's the harder it is for that practitioner to extract dollars of skill, dollars of alpha from the market. So the biggest concern is in the democratization of alternatives is that it just doesn't work in scale for everybody. Uh, I know that's true in the hedge fund universe. Um, private markets, it's a little bit different because it's not necessarily zero-sum. So that's a big one that I, I think when I saw the liquid alts starting in hedge funds, which goes back a ways now, 
Um, it was pretty clear when you were inside the industry that the products being offered weren't as good as what you could get in the, and say the, the, the private structure, like it used to be. Um, and as a result of that, people aren't going to have as good of an experience. Fees were high back then return and sure enough, returns weren't great. Um, the other is this question of, can you democratize complexity? Because most of the time when something really goes wrong, um, and let's, let's say that's left tail risk. Let's say that's what people really worry about, fraud, losing all your money, not, hey, I invested in this strategy, it didn't work as I expected, or it wasn't quite good enough, I want to do a little bit better, but something really goes wrong, permanent loss of capital. Um, that's a real problem. Um, some of these strategies aren't that complex, but some of them really are. And we know human nature chases returns. So if someone goes out and shows some track record that looks really good and attracts money to it, but ultimately it's not real, that's a real problem. Um, and you can go back to Bernie Madoff and the Ponzi scheme and FTX, which is obviously quite a different thing. Um, but these frauds come up. Uh, I wrote a piece on this a couple of months ago. Frauds are really hard to detect if you're in the business. Fraudsters are clever. And they stay ahead of you and they spend all their time staying ahead of you. And so as a, as a intelligence, sophisticated investor, whether it's in companies or credits or managers, people want to think frauds or something happens to somebody else, but it's just not the case. And so that's the biggest concern with the democratization is you're going to be, those individuals are an extra layer away from where the manager is making decisions. And if something bad happens, it's just going to affect a lot more people. Well, Ted, I think that's a that's a good place to end it. I know you have a prior commitment, um, you know, that you have to hop to, and you know, it is a mutual client of ours, so we need to make sure that we keep <laughs> them happy because, given all you've said out there, they've went through this process of hiring us. So, um, I want to thank you uh, for coming on the show today. Before I let you leave, I'd want to also um, be able to direct uh, people to how they can get a hold of you, follow you. Get, get into your insights. What's the best way for our listeners to, to get access to capital allocators? Yeah, thanks. Appreciate that. Uh, we house everything at our website, which is capitalallocators.com. Uh, I also have a, a Twitter feed and a LinkedIn feed where we share everything we're doing. And the easiest way is to hop on that website. We have a free monthly mailing list and uh, we kind of share everything through that. Okay. Well, I, again, I don't think free is the best business model here, Ted, but who am I to uh, to criticize someone who has the success you've had? So thanks for coming by today. We really appreciate it. However, before we let you go, we have to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. So Sam, take it away. All right, Ted. And that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. And it's oftentimes not the uh, favorite part of the show of the people on the receiving end. So with that, uh, what I do is I offer a series of alternating prompts uh, between you and Jeff to get a top of mind response. And to kick us off with the first example here, I'm going to give it to Sherman with personal consumption. Resilient. Over to you, Ted, with Cold War. Bad. Sherman, 50 basis points. Good management fee, but that's not where you think you were going. Uh, I think 50 basis <laughs> points is not on the table uh, for the next Fed meeting. Slow and steady wins the race here. I think 
they'd really do a series of 25s and get us through there. So I think that's where you're going. But 50 basis points sounds like a good management fee to me. Yeah. It uh, doesn't matter where I was going. I wanted to see where you were going. So I saw both <laughs> That's where my head was after all this business <laughs> and monetizing things. So uh, sorry about that. No problem. All right. You, over to you, Ted, with behavioral biases. Uh, unavoidable. Wage price spiral. Is that for me or is that for Jeff? No, it's for me. I'm thinking. Oh, okay. I, I'm going to say to be determined. I'm not convinced it exists yet. Um, I think the Fed is misdirected. I think that when you look at the causes and roots of the inflation we had there, it was from you know the fiscal stimulus, from the monetary policy being too easy for too long. I'm not convinced it's wage price spiral that's driven this last one. And I, unfortunately, uh, by the time we would know it, it would be too late. So um, I, I get the concern, not a Phillips curve advocate, as you know, Sam. So um, I, I think it's a big question mark. And uh, I, again, I, I err on the side that it doesn't exist yet. All right. Back to you, Ted, with idea generation. Um, tantamount importance to investment success. All right. Back to you, Sherman, with no landing. No way. Swenson. You got to land the plane sometime, man. I just flew in today. You got to land sometime. <laughs> You'll run out of fuel. Swenson approach. Uh, innovative and brilliant. Spring training. I'm here today in Scottsdale, not for spring training. So it's sad. Unfortunately, I'm here for a client event. So uh, that's where I'll be running to after this. So uh, not that anyone cares uh, on these you know, split squad games, unless you're one of those members. But uh, I've actually never been, Sam, as much of a baseball fan as I am. Never been to spring training. And it's right outside this hotel right now. <laughs> Get after it, man. Get after it. Do what you got to do and then uh, head over there. Yeah, those clients are important first. We start there, you know. That's all right. All right. You're going to close us up here, Ted, with Sherman's, for Sherman Says, and your prompt is Savannah Bananas. Oh, nothing like innovation in sports. Um, I can't wait to go see a game. And it's uh, – it tells you where baseball could go before everybody's ready to write it off. So get, get elucidate us. Tell tell our listeners about it. What 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 gets you so excited about the span of bananas? Well, I haven't seen them yet. If you haven't seen it on social media, um, it is a is a baseball turned entertainment minor league team. Guy took over a random minor league team in Savannah, Georgia, and just made it fun. So they, they changed, they have a game. Uh, I think they call it a banana baseball or something like that. They even changed the rules, things like a foul ball. If, if a fan catches it, it counts as an out. <laughs> yeah. There's, and then you'll see them dancing and doing just really making the game really, really fun. And it went from a tiny minor league team. They now do tours and are, they're almost considered like the Harlem Globetrotters of baseball. It sounds interesting. I, I got to check that out too. I, I was not aware of that. So Sam, thanks for telling Ted, but not, not telling me about it. Yeah. Kudos to uh, Kimbrough for digging that one up. And uh, it's one of those things where I throw it out and you, you, know, you take a leap of faith and hold that the uh, response is there on the other end. <laughs> well, I'll have, to, I'll have to bring this up with Kimbrough when, when we have our team meeting later on about why I don't know about these uh, in, innovative events here. So Ted, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank, thanks for spending some time with us today. Again, Ted, CITES, Capital Allocators. I, I had to make sure I emphasize that because you said so many people get your name incorrect. 
Uh, but definitely what had a great time today speaking with you. Look forward to doing this in the future as, as well. And thank you for spending time with us today on The Sherman Show. Thanks so much, Sherman. Thanks, Sam. All right. Take care. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2023, DoubleLine Capital.